0: Well, I first saw 2001 as a child. I was about seven years old, and they re-released 2001 in the wake of the tremendous success of Star Wars. So the appetite for anything to do with science fiction then was massive. And my father took me to the Leicester Square Theatre. And it became this sort of seminal introduction to the the power of cinema, what cinema can be. I remember the size of the screen. I remember the sense of awe. And over the years, my relationship with the film has evolved, but I think that that first response is in many ways, I think, the truest response to 2001. I think it is primarily uh, an emotional experience. It's something you feel. voice print identification
1: <laughs> 2001 a space podacy i'm wes i'm brad thank
0: you you are cleared through voice print identification
1: open the pod bay doors please help yeah we're back uh, this is the perfect time Everything is coming together. This is like the age of Aquarius. <laughs> you know, the, the seasons change. Yes. The time has changed. It's getting darker sooner. It's getting chilly. Mm. And this is going to allow us to kind of tuck back into the soup for the sci fi soul. The crock pot has been percolating while we've been gone. Mm-hmm. The stock is thickened. We have the keep warm button and um, it stayed at a palatable temperature. Now Hal's been keeping an eye. Several eyes on it, of course. He's really become the budding, epicurious intelligence.
2: Some of these combinations, though, like, do you... Has anyone ever in their life said, you know what I love in this beef stew is some anise? Mm. Like, who thought licorice was a good
1: idea? That one's... I'm going to have to talk to him about that. Yeah, you... It's the problem, aftertaste. The problem with the anise is little goes such a long way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> three, the heavy-handed nature gets, oh, of that, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like Twizzlers. Oh, man. Licorice is uh, terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate licorice, too. We, we need to put that on the list of... Get another slot in the vending
2: machine. Yeah. Deals. Put that in the suggestion box for all the good that does. But it is that time for soup and for nestling, and it's time for socks. Oh. Which means we have
1: news. Excellent.
2: So the Stanley Kubrick collection of the official Stanley Kubrick merchandise shop at Dude,
1: StanleyKubrickStore.com. Oh, the Monolith T-shirt is amazing. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's like it's inverted, so that you've got a, a mirror image. That is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, the bottom half of the Monolith seems to be reflecting the uh, looks like a sunset. That beautiful African golden too. hour motif.
2: Yes, on a golden T-shirt. Very nice, form fitting. I love that. Gorgeous! Yep. Wow, 200. I might um, have to procure. They've got all kinds of design. You can look by type of clothing. You can look by film. They've got their collections divided into the four films that we do have stuff for, which is in, in chronological order: two thousand and one, Clockwork Orange, Shining, and Full Metal Jacket. We don't have any Barry Lyndon merch
1: yet, or anything from the sixties. That's what I was keeping my eye out here for. I mean, yeah, I want an ape. Lyndon sucks. Oh, some yes. revolvers maybe. Posiery. Yeah. Pantaloons.
2: Got red rum socks. Great. The this sock is, uh... department. I mean, this is this is our problem. This is our thing at Clavius. We're we're always running out of socks. We always need fresh, clean socks. And you have a lot of nice selections here. And you can buy them in a, four, in a set of four as well. It's in collaboration with the Jimmy Lyon brand. So you can get them individually or get a box set for your favorite cinephile at Christmas and holidays. These are the underwear that's fun to wear kind of socks.
0: Trying to make it real compared to what sock you told me
1: had. Cooper films have been interwoven into the cultural fabric of our age at this point, so... It, it's nice to see this kind of merchandise.
2: Katrina and her sisters and Jan, and certainly Christian, preserving the legacy. Let's say the legacy. Legacy. Preserve I think the that's legacy. great. I think that's great. Because you got the mobile museums going around all over the place, mm-hmm. the store, the 4Ks, and there's now a logo that you'll see on all of those things. On the 4Ks, on the store, the merch, it says Stanley Kubrick in that very specific font. And I think that is the estate's branded yes. like mission statement. For the next. Their seal of approval. And we're getting screenings again. And Arclight has got 2001 and 70. Wow. Unfortunately not the Cinerama dome because that's still closed at the moment. Are they renovating? It closed for COVID and Arclight went bankrupt. There's still not enough to do the
1: Cinerama. Movie going huge. in general is yeah. just on the decline it seems like. Yeah.
0: All of us had... Hours of putting our feet up on somebody's couch and going, okay, what did this mean and what is this really? I mean, it's one of the most thought-provoking movies ever made. And no, I don't know what it meant, but just having a movie that I enjoyed that much, even without knowing what the thrust of it was.
2: And we're getting into one of the most famous of all the most famous sequences.
1: It's, for me, In the Stargate sequence where everything is so ephemeral and choosing to do more of a nebulous portrayal of that scene instead of the more sci-fi heavy depiction that Arthur C. Clarke had in his scape where it shows all of the different alien vessels and all of the different infrastructure that exists within... It would have been very difficult to portray that in a way that didn't cheapen the aesthetic, I think. To do this in a way that makes sense and conveys Bowman's transition through the gate, I think this was their optimal trajectory for really nailing the visuals and and not making it a, a really cheeky kind of like oh (laughs) you know we're in another dimension moment they really kept it grounded and i think that's why this scene is so important to the overall film
0: you almost have to violate the laws of physics to get anywhere uh, the cosmic distances, if you believe in Einstein, if you believe in the speed of light as, as an upper limit, uh, are really very great. So
1: you need the idea of, of black holes or going into into the kind of, of chasm that that uh, was in two thousand and one to make plausible I think the idea of widespread uh, contact between civilizations
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. you
1: know, like i mean he 's never experienced anything like this. No human has ever experienced anything like this. And the psychological shock of being thrust through this dimensional window had to have been hard to put down on picture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's so much more of a feeling and, and like a visual interpretation of what something must be like that for interstellar travel that we have never even like. So you could almost picture it as like a, a mental trip. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I had no idea about the kind of trip I was going to go on. And I went on one of the greatest trips of my life.
2: The 4K, I just opened it up, popped it in this afternoon, mm. watched that sequence mm. in 4K for the first time. Still the most powerful is at Cinerama Dome, of course. But second to that is is probably this because of what brought me to tears sitting in that theater, which is the impeccable, just the, the absolute perfection of these images. Because at 4K, like this is better than they ever saw it. This is better than it was meant to be seen. It was meant to be seen huge and big and crisp in 70. But at the resolution that you're getting from frame scanning, which is high resolution 4K scan of each frame of celluloid at 70 millimeter, this massively black blacks of space you have the white of the glowing of those stars you have jupiter with a little bit of a haze ethereal glow but still perfectly swirling which is again they were guessing we hadn't seen jupiter that close they just happened to get it perfectly right monolith is floating always soaring in a lateral glide we we never see it vertically in this sequence and as you're getting closer to it, and I'm thinking, this is Colin Cantwell's cardboard. This is the <laughs> Colin Cantwell cardboard. No, it's not. It's a monolith floating at you in 3D space with this swirling gasoline. Yeah, And, I'm, and I'm, I'm like, how is that? And it's not there, but it is. Because it's all in
0: camera.
2: Because all of those effects were either done in camera in the first pass or optically through another pass yeah onto that frame of celluloid which is getting slapped up against that scanner printed at 4k all as one image it's just one thing so it might as well be real because it, the detail is real and it's all being captured on that one
1: piece of celluloid it's beautiful those chemical liquids intertwining and mingling with each other
0: A single, very powerful, radio emission aimed at Jupiter, the four million year old black monolith has remained completely inert. Its origin and purpose still a total mystery.
2: Dave is listening. To the pinball reward video after he's accomplished the mission of shutting down Hal. yeah You think there out.
1: would be like a, a confetti ticker, <laughs> yeah. ticker tape parade yeah. <laughs> for him as he does his last walk through the discovery
2: but one little easter egg they should have put in oh. the command mod. <laughs> so then we fade out in the middle of the message we never get to hear the rest of what floyd's talking about jupiter beyond the infinite flashes on the screen fade in we got Ligeti,
1: atmospheres and we've got the monolith we are getting into the nitty gritty this is probably what i would classify as act three Mm -hmm. the big finale
2: and you can tell we're going beyond the infinite because that's the first shot we're in that direction blackness of space jupiter the edge of a moon and then the monolith comes creeping up in
1: the frame perfectly timed and i mean this mm-hmm. this was all planned out by these architects of dave's odyssey
2: and the first time we look back the discovery comes in the frame and the little hatch opens and the light pours out and in 4k i'm looking at the spacesuit hanging on the other side of the wall what? behind the pod in the pod bay yeah <laughs> it's ridiculous on the projector or on the on the 4K display, on the TV. Yeah. yeah. And I was getting as close as I could. Usually, these things have healthy grain structure. This this has very healthy, very dense grain structure because mm. it's 70 and it's shot at such high contrast on these parts. You really you see a pretty pure image. Mm-hmm. And the pod deploys in a separate shot when it's already out there. So they didn't have to animate the pod boop, coming out, but somehow they managed to get that flare of light around the pod base so that it's not just like a little circle where they've cut out a place to put right. a projection. Yeah. It looks like the light is pouring right out of there. Then the next thing you see of him, you a close up of Dave's helmet, then you might see the pod, but other than that, you ain't seen the pod again. Now we're inside with Dave. It's Purely from his perspective out of the cockpit, and then looking at his face and his eyes. And that's the second
1: set that they created mm-hmm. for that module.
0: <laughs> Toward the end of the production, we started working on aliens and actual one on one encounters with aliens. Uh, Stanley's wife, Christiana, was working on sculpting aliens, painting aliens. I was working on slit scan versions of aliens, you know, kind of light beings. We talked about different life forms. But we didn't spend a lot of time at it. What we were most interested in was not how something works, what its metabolism was, whether it needed oxygen or liquid water. That's for literature to deal with. In a movie, we had to find something that was instantly utilitarian as an image, without worrying about what keeps it alive. You have to recognize that it is a living thing, but it isn't something we know. Where this led us, ultimately, was the realization that i think as stanley once put it you can't really show the face of god
1: in the novel we get a very defined and you know rationally explained visual of what bowman is seeing he is actually seeing the vast array of alien craft being docked at this mega structure he's seeing you know entire nebula being formed and flying by him and uh, it is rich in detail and very grounded. To try to work that into the film, giving it as much realism as possible would be a very difficult task. You know, I really applaud the direction they took. Instead of making Bowman go through this incredibly detailed and concrete visualization of this Stargate ascension, de- descension, what is he even, you know, in space, what is up, what is Yeah. He, um, but he is plunged into this more ephemeral and kind of volumetric uh, light and sound projection that is giving us more of a mental sense of what he's going through and less of the actual physical action of him going through a dimensional rift in space.
2: Not only is it so hard to, to depict in film, but to convey. What the hell's going on? I mean, you have the luxury of explaining when you have prose. Peter Weir, another hero, favorite director of mine, explained it like, imagine you, you've you got a book, and you turn it up by its spine, and then you just shake all the words out of it. <laughs> And all that's left is the lines of dialogue. And now you have to put back all of the prose that you can't, you know, unless you're just doing a thudding narration of everything that happened. And then this happened. You don't have that luxury of describing things as you go. You have to find a visual way to link it up and, and if it's too expensive and, and downright impossible, literally impossible to portray. Impossible to,
1: depict all to the portray, time. yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you know, for for what they had to work with, this was the most efficient way. And so many other films at the time were guilty of the cut to black throw text on screen Mm -hmm. or have a actual narrator just tell you what is going on and that ruins the immersion that really breaks um the fourth wall and 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 takes you out of the uh, kind of like visual demand that this scene really requires i mean you cannot look away from this it is it is an uninterrupted Visual experience for about what, like six or eight minutes, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, it's one
2: long fever dream. No matter how many times I try to examine the cuts, the order of the shots, especially when we get to the different planets, I, I can't do it. I eventually get lost in the montage. Yeah, time, which is that's the yeah of it.
1: There's almost like a meditative uh, aspect to it. You know, I mean, you're you're being completely. Enshrouded by this light you know you are you're plunged almost into an ocean of of texture ever evolving it's almost chasing a shape it never fully forms it's always almost something and never quite the defined structure that your eye wants to make it does simulate a little bit like drowning doesn't it yeah, yeah, and that's why I was, why I was, I was thinking ascension. You know, just because. Yeah, ascending to a higher plane of. The yeah, exactly. Because yeah. this, I'm imagining that outside of our normal comprehension of space time, this has to be a like a pocket dimension or like an another realm or layer uh, where these beings can exist mm-hmm. in their higher. Kind of energy being, yes, form and not be kind of bound to the celestial, well, celestial. Like the <laughs> that's funny to say, right? Yeah, constraints of mm-hmm. gravity and all that. But but that's kind of true, I guess. Like our maybe just bound to the laws of nature that we know at this time and what we are subjected to. Yeah. yeah. Does he die? Like, does he die? when he's going through this portal. I just wonder about that. And it just... Physically withstanding
2: it, I mean, the only thing that even makes a question is the pod, right? Yeah. Can the pod protect from that? Exactly. Otherwise, there's no question.
1: Yeah. And I mean, in this place in between, if there's no time passing, does your heart need to beat? Does your lung need to be full of oxygen? What are the constraints of this in between space
2: because maybe that's it maybe a descension ascension or transcendence maybe that's really what if and if we're transitioning between dimensions Mm -hmm. are you also passing literally through
1: masses and thinking about star trek transporter technology (laughs) (laughs) because in that universe every part of your body down to its molecules are just broken down into its constituent parts and then sent as information to whatever target that you Mm -hmm. pointed at
0: When we look this deeply into space, we are looking at a ghostly image of the distant past. For the light by which we see these regions started traveling towards us long before the dawn of life on Earth. In all of time, on all the planets of all the galaxies in space, What civilizations have risen, looked into the night, seen what we see, asked the questions that we ask?
1: I'm well, well out of my depth talking about this, but black holes technically consume data. And it's something, oh my goodness, I'm like way out of my depth on this. But essentially if you were to go into a black hole all of your information would turn into energy like actual information would huh. be transformed into energy and then probably shot out in the form of a pulsar or something like that but the idea that maybe this trans dimensional arc had broken Bowman down, taken all of his knowledge and then sapped him into the menagerie because he didn't
2: like (laughs) we see it again in 2010 and like when you go to the model it's not like you just straddle it and then ride it somewhere (laughs) it's like it's oh my god it's full of stars and then so are you yeah (laughs) you're sucked in (laughs) so if you're going at a speed like you would at a wormhole let's say light speed or obviously beyond the speed of light yeah then is it kind of like, or am I, I'm, I'm just... Whoa, well, you know, we're just interpreting a,
1: a fictional film, so it's all cool. We don't have to be hunted down or emailed to death about yeah. how we don't understand.
2: So is it like the old trick of grabbing a tablecloth and yanking it and leaving all the plates on it? Can you pass through a material at such a high speed that he's actually ripping through all those mountains on another planet yeah. and oceans and everything, and he doesn't have to steer because he's not going to hit something and explode. Sure. He's just going to rip right through the space yeah yeah and
1: i think especially if we think about you know in the real practical world if we're looking at neutrinos they can pass through about any substance and they're so hard to track down and quantify because of that so they can pass through solid matter
0: There's a shaft going down that's rotating the artwork here. The shaft goes along here, comes down to some gears. There's a little motor here. It goes down to here and rotates this whole thing. And I photographed this in a, darkened, a completely darkened room with nothing but that little rim illuminated by the projector. And this was my first test of Jupiter. And then I had to design this painting, which would be a one circular painting. And one half of it would represent the northern hemisphere of Jupiter, and the other half of the painting would represent the southern hemisphere of Jupiter. So I made this painting because I am an artist and I was able to get my airbrush and my watercolors and my gouache, paint this on a piece of cardboard. So the painting is really in two halves. This represented the lower half of Jupiter, which was going to have the red spot and the upper half of Jupiter. And then around the edge, it's the same because I was going to kind of feather those two together with a little bit of a blur right around the equator. This whole
2: sequence starts in Jupiter ends in another dimension and then shoots us back out to the threshold of earth that's an interesting space-time mm-hmm. question was he ever going in the other direction
1: mm-hmm.
2: or is direction a meaningless term like meaningless. once you're in the monolith maybe the monolith is floating back to earth and when you re-emerge you weren't going back towards pluto at all you were just going beyond Yeah. It? yeah yeah
1: i imagine it's got some kind of a strange physical omnipotence. Yeah. Because, you know... He, it's everywhere all the time, all at once. Yeah.
2: Otherwise, you're talking about massive amounts of shoe leather of just watching this little embryo just go... exploding <laughs> <laughs> <just> <laughs> through galaxies for hundreds of millions of years then <laughs> <and> finally just... <laughs> it's <finally gets> back.
1: <laughs> Amazing.
2: But it's hard not to think about it in linear, pragmatic you know, earthly turn. Sure. That's why we love to keep
1: going back to this. Yeah, because this, you have to think differently. Destroys every faculty of linear expectation. Certainly does for him. <laughs> <laughs> He's living a time loop if ever. Sure.
2: we're getting to all those other planets after the Stargate
1: mm-hmm.
2: that's the the thing that always gets me because in my mind I'm, I always remember back mm-hmm. on it as you go through all the different planets and then you get to the Stargate you get the split screen split s- scan and then you've
1: got the eyeball but it's not so maybe it's kind of like back to the future rules where you have to accelerate beyond the speed of light uh-huh. and once you accelerate beyond the speed of light then you can travel anywhere and be anywhere that's funny because there's a star trek voyager episode do we talk about this i think we talked about this maybe not the uh hotshot pilot that they brought along to help stop i think it was the bajoran terrorist group the hotshot pilot of the group takes a shuttlecraft beyond warp nine i think he goes to warp 10 or whatever which i interpret as beyond the speed of light because that's kind of their you know speed limit he does this and and he like kind of disappears for a little bit
2: oh
1: (laughs) once he hits that speed and then he comes back and he's fine he's celebrating you know he's just accomplished i mean just huge goal and (laughs) immediately gets sick, starts losing hair and just straight out of a Cronenberg (laughs) body horror. (laughs) And he starts transitioning and he's like, I've got to get out of here. Oh no. (laughs) So he steals a shuttlecraft and ends up taking the captain hostage with him because she wasn't going to let him go. (laughs) then they both devolve or evolve into lizards. (laughs)
0: And they have little lizard babies. Right, stop that! Silly!